Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Ami Tobin. Ami is the author of Surveillance Zone, The Hidden World of Corporate Surveillance Detection and Covert Special Operations. He is the Director of Consulting, Training, and Special Operations for HICOM Security Services. He is one of the pioneer developers of the terrorist activity prevention, surveillance detection, and covert protection fields in Silicon Valley. Trained in Israel, Japan, and the United States, Ami has over 15 years of military, IDF, and private sector security experience. He's based in the San Francisco Bay Area and provides special protective services to Fortune 500 companies, foreign governments, foundations, political organizations, and wealthy individuals. Ami, welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you, Fred. It's, it's a real honor to be here. Oh, my goodness, Ami. I've been a big fan of yours for quite some time. I, I think you know this, but I put uh, your book, The Surveillance Zone, in my the, the definitive protective intelligence reading list into the OnTIC blog. So uh, I think you did a wonderful job with that book. Yeah, thank you very much. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that I am a huge fan of yours. I've been following you for quite a while. I've only, and I say this, only uh, read two of your books, but uh, Chasing Shadows and Beirut Rules were absolute masterpieces. So yeah, thank you. This is, this is a real honor. It's, a, it's a long in coming for us to have a little conversation here. Well, you're very kind. I, I appreciate that. As you know, when you put books together, it's a labor of love and uh, it's a lot of work, uh, but some stories need to be told. Indeed. How did you get into this business? All right. So um, I was starting from the beginning. I was, uh, as you mentioned, born and raised in, in Israel, Canadian-American, Israeli family, so uh, hence the, the English, but pretty uh, standard Israeli upbringing Grew up on a kibbutz, for those who uh, might know what that is, and uh, did my IDF service in the mid-1990s. After that, I spent a few years in Japan before coming to the United States. And here in the United States, as a student, I joined a company called Hikon Security Services. And I am still in the company after all these years. It's been about 16 years or so. And I suppose for Israelis, it's not all that surprising to get into security or back into uh, security work. HICOM is, in, is not an Israeli-based, but, but uh, a company that was founded by Israelis, providing mostly terrorist activity prevention, at least at the time. We've expanded since then. And I always thought there was something not entirely unnatural about my joining a company like this in order to, to get to work and to do some interesting work primarily with the Jewish and Israeli communities here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And from then started really delving deeply into uh, the hostile planning process, terrorist activity prevention, and altogether high-level prevention of hostile acts 
through the years that got me to work with pretty much every law enforcement and government agency here in the San Francisco Bay Area and with uh, quite a variety of different, uh, different clients and delving deeper and deeper into uh, things like surveillance and surveillance detection and so forth. That's a wonderful overview. I had, I had no idea. Why did you go to Japan? So this was actually a childhood dream of going to Japan, living in Japan to study martial arts. It was uh, always viewed as a dream and, and uh, I was laughed at quite a bit for uh, having this dream in the military and uh, everybody telling me that I'd, I'd forget it 50 times over by the time I got <laughs> out of the military, if I even got out in one piece. And the opposite actually happened and it just kept on getting stronger till I got out of the military in 1997 and... About a year later, I was already living in Tokyo and uh, pursuing martial arts, primarily Aikido and a, an old stick fighting discipline. Um, I had a, quite a, a background in martial arts before I ever got to Japan, but that was always my passion. And I'm still doing it and still practicing Aikido and Krav Maga and, and, and other things that I can get my hands on. That's amazing. Uh, you certainly are an individual that have uh, that has followed your dreams. So I applaud you for that. Uh, I I'm always telling um, students and and people that look for advice in this business uh, uh, the same thing. And uh, you certainly are a poster child for that. You touched on something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. I know from my days as an agent and started looking at all these attacks that that took place and trying to figure out why, for the most part, did the bad guys always win? And we were always playing catch up, as you well know. And it, it dawned on me that we do have this very specific kind of attack cycle and that the only way to get in front of some of these attacks is through a surveillance detection model. Explain a little bit your mindset when it comes to surveillance detection. So before, maybe before delving into surveillance detection, maybe dealing with what you mentioned with the hostile planning cycle, or I call it the hostile planning process, surveillance detection is really one way of dealing with it. But it all starts from the initial mindset of wanting to do preventive security work. In addition to, but uh, time-wise it happens before, uh, reactive measures, countermeasures. You can always make that divide between preventive measures and reactive measures. And we're talking here about prevention before the fact. And the, the key to understanding prevention and the key to executing prevention properly is to understand what it is that you're trying to target, what it is that you're trying to prevent. Of course, we're, we're preventing a crime or the attack from happening, but what we're actually targeting is not the crime itself because then you're only reacting to it. You're targeting the hostile planning that comes before the attack that leads up to the attack, and you want to disrupt that hostile planning process. You want to isolate, you want to recognize and understand the vulnerabilities of the hostile planning process. And once you've done that, you can really target those vulnerabilities and disrupt their process so they don't reach the execution phase. So there's various ways of doing this. One way that is more conventional done by security operators in a mostly overt capacity is surveillance deterrence or disruption and so forth. A much more covert measure would be surveillance detection. So to detect that there is an issue, if you're not interested in immediately disrupting or immediately exposing and deterring 
the potential hostile actor. And there's various reasons why you might want to immediately disrupt and other reasons why you might not want to immediately disrupt. Yeah, well said. And that was a great explanation. How important is observation skills in this model? It's extremely important. I mean, it's, it's really the, the detection in this, in this case is done primarily what I teach people to do. This is not in any way the only way to do it, but what I teach people to do and what we do at HICOM is what people do. We, of course, can, can use cameras and equipment and so forth, but ultimately it's people using their observation. Uh, using their eyes to look at the environment, to look at the people in the environment and to see what they're doing. And then, of course, to do something about it, depending on what your response is. Now, the things you need to understand are, first of all, what your, what your client is, who you're protecting, what the assets are, what the vulnerabilities of the assets are. And then you want to understand also the environment around you. Now, from there, it becomes a little bit more interesting because I find that there are a lot of organizations that will have their officers or operators try to secure an environment and get general ideas of look out for anything suspicious, look out for suspicious individuals, look out for anything out of the ordinary in the environment. Now, that's okay. That, that's not a mistake. Of course, that's, that's what we're all trying to do. But it's, I find it a bit too vague. Uh, when I'm in the field, I want to get more specific. And the way to get more specific is to go back and learn the hostile planning process, to look at the client as a target, from, not from the inside out as a security operator does, but from the outside and from the hostile perspective, not just theoretically, but physically, go around and try to mimic a hostile observer and try to figure out where you would be as a hostile observer. Where would be the good vantage points for you to take that will provide you the information you need to collect for the surveillance with the protection of distance or cover and so forth. Now, once you've found those, you can go back to a security position and look in the environment in a much more specific way. It's not just like sweeping a whole swath of city, but really focusing on hotspots that are more likely to be hostile vantage points. We're not trying to ignore everything in between, but we have much more to work on as far as taking more of a vague picture and focusing it into more of an educated guess to help with observation. Observation is very difficult to maintain for hours and hours. You have to make it more specific and more targeted if you really want to get to a higher level. Yeah. And focusing that lens and trying to put yourself in the position of the bad guy conducting that surveillance and then looking for those areas where that surveillance could be conducted from. Indeed. Yeah. And, and going back to that question about surveillance uh, detection, uh, which is done covertly in most cases, versus something like surveillance disruption or surveillance deterrence, the, uh, there's no one or two ways to do this. But, but uh, a good maybe split to, to visualize here is if you look at a, a, a target or an asset, depending on who's looking at it, and the protection of it, the security of it, is usually done from the actual property itself, from the asset itself, ideally from the outside, looking into what we call the outer circle, the area around, the environment around where somebody, where the vantage points are, where somebody could be looking back in order to collect intelligence. 
that's security with protection with uh, surveillance deterrence. And there are follow-ups to that, of course. Surveillance detection done covertly, you do not want to be in that position. Where you want to be is behind the hostile surveillance vantage point. You want to be behind what we call the red zone, looking at them from their back in order to not be detected by the bad guys. So it's a very, it's a very interesting dichotomy between, between the overt protection and the covert detection, which is a form, in fact, of field protective intelligence rather than physical protection. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTIC's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.ai slash center. That's ontic.ai slash center. Let's hone in a little bit on observation skills. You're out in the field, Ami. You're on a detail. What are some of those things that you're looking for, or what are some of those points of advice that you could give to a protective team as to what they should be looking for? First and foremost, it depends on the environment, because different environments have different types of people doing different types of things. I think the the other sort of split you want to make is are you looking for, are you targeting people who are conducting hostile surveillance, people who are potentially planning on closing in and coming in to attack, and uh, the people who are actually walking towards you, arriving, coming, and you need to do some access control screening on them? Uh, there are some similarities, but maybe we should start with the former where I'm looking at the environment, I already narrowed down to points of interest, these vantage points where I want to look at the individuals. And I want to look at individuals who are expressing or showing signs of how generally I would do or, or be if I were in their position. Now, if, if I were conducting hostile surveillance. I would need to have line of sight. I would need to look at my target. So people who are observing are of special interest. Uh, and then what is the person doing? What do they look? How do they fit into the environment? Demeanor. Demeanor, I would say demeanor, body language, and also appearance. Appearance is also a very important factor. Chosen appearance. And I always make that, that distinction. And that becomes very, very important when we're doing access control, when we actually look at people who are arriving, looking at chosen appearance and looking at body language. Because in chosen appearance, first of all, to explain what chosen appearance, um, we are not looking for unchosen characteristics unchosen characteristics, your age, your race, your gender, your height, all these things that a person really doesn't have any control over, don't tell me anything about their intent. I'm looking for, ultimately, for some type of hostile intent and something, a, a cliche example of like the heavy jacket on a warm day, that is a choice. 
Why did the person choose to put that on them before they left their house or wherever they came from to come to this place at this time? They don't seem to be cold. Why do they have it on them? Well, it's a classic form of concealing something as our bags and as our, as our other things, let alone types of military fatigues and so forth. So you, you start looking for those clues and the more you try, the more you see and the better you get at it. Yeah, it takes practice. And that's one thing that uh, I think is a hard lesson at times, that it's just something that doesn't happen overnight. It really takes a lot of time on the streets. It takes uh, superior area knowledge of, of what you're looking for and, and at and what you're trying to protect. It, it's something that's not like a light switch. Definitely. And the good news is that even though there, there is no substitute to actual practice, in actual protective operations, you can practice it in a lower level, just anytime, anywhere you go. Just look at people, try to understand people. You're always going to see people. You can even do this on yourself and, and look at what it, what's on you right now. What position is your body in? What does it say about what you're doing at the moment? Because nothing is there by chance. Even if you haven't noticed it, it says something about you. So you can always start raising your consciousness to these types of things. And ultimately, people are people. The better you understand people, the better you'll be equipped to deal with, with protective operations. And I found over the course of my career that uh, in order to be good at this, you really do have to understand that environment. You have to take the time to learn your area, uh, to be a student of, of subtle behaviors, meaning did that individual walk by once or twice or three times? And then obviously it takes good technology to have databases to, to record that kind of observation. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, the, the environment really, really does change. There, there are things that are, are completely uh, suspicious in one environment and, and, and not in another. Raising your consciousness to these things is the, the, the key, the, the first place to start. But later on, it, it is definitely the, the case that once your consciousness is raised, once you really start observing more and seeing more, you do go through a period which never really ends of a bit of sensory overload, a bit of, of a, a bit of too much. Things like what Ontic provides can, can really help looking for those needles in the haystacks of, of what you're going to be observing. And through also through some experience and practice, you, you do learn how to get better at this and you do learn your environment better too, because it takes time to understand the environment as well. Looking back in your career, Ami, in this business, what are some of the hard lessons that you've learned? I, I think the, the, the first thing was to, to learn things weren't as specific as I wanted them to be. It was, it was very difficult to, to, to basically just go out there and, and do your best and, and wanting to get more and going through definitely even some, some failures uh, over uh, along the way, learning from those failures and moving forward, failures during operations, failures during training. There's never any any shortage of that. You know, the, the, the good news is that you're never, you're never not learning uh, when, when you're out there. So... I guess a, a point of encouragement because uh, you're almost always gonna gonna face situations where it was less than ideal, and, and you know you you, you want to have a growth mindset about how to how to improve that for the future. When you talk to individuals that want to get in this business, what is some of the advice that you pass along? 
Well, let's see. First is have some patience uh, and don't be uh, either afraid or, or, or don't, don't be too impatient and wanting to start at a high level immediately. I get a lot of those. The people that I do the most interesting work with are the people who I've known for the longest, the people who've spent a lot of time in the trenches with me, the people who've done uh, more of the menial kind of security operations. And I got to know them. I got to trust them. And we get to take it to the next level. I think a very common thing that happens to me, I, I've written about this as well, is people with a lot of really impressive backgrounds throwing their resumes at me and, and, and telling me, hey, uh, you know, put me in. And I am not here to doubt anybody's credentials. For all I know, they're, they're 10 times better than, than me. I just don't know them yet. So the patience of coming in, starting that relationship, if you're, if you're coming into this industry, with somebody without asking them for too much and then gradually working your way up into the trust circle to do the more interesting things if that's what you're interested in. What would you do differently looking back on your career? I think I would always take more training than I did. You mean within the IDF or? Within anything. I, I, and maybe more specifically in the, the, the security industry. In the IDF, I didn't really have too much control over the, the training I received and the things that I did. But taking more training, taking more time to train more, not only to acquire specific tools, but to get to know more people and to just get more mixed up and to, and to increase your, your, your network. I know people who do a lot of that and I'm, I'm always jealous of their ability to do more uh, of that than, than, than I can. That's, I think, a big one. Of course, there, there's no shortage of things that I, uh, I'm very self-critical, but uh, I think uh, it's best if we, we keep it at that. <laughs> well, I think we, uh, at times, are our own worst enemies when we're trying to look at, at situations. And Absolutely. Now, if someone wants to learn more about your methodology, your training, uh, I understand you've got a great new online course. I do, yeah. So in HICOM, we just put out a new e-learning uh, training course on hostile activity prevention, which is the training essentially that we give our own operators. Oh, interesting. So this isn't something that we made. This uh, just quick disclosure here. Sure. We we did not make this, even the video segments and, and all, uh, we did not originally make this for as an e-learning tool. We made this as an internal training tool for our people, basically going over the training that I give our own officers. Every single security operator, security officer that comes to join HICOM goes through a four-hour session with me where we go over basically this, this hostile activity prevention program. And we go over a lot of the stuff we covered with the hostile planning process, the preventive versus reactive measures, circles of security, uh, surveillance deterrence, detection, high-level detection and access control, and a few other things as well. And we put together this e-learning training course from that content. So what it might maybe lack in frills or bells and whistles, this is the actual real deal that our operators receive. It's from me in our training room in front of the board that I stand and I train our security operators uh, with. So we're kind of excited about that. It puts basically all our content 
regarding terrorist activity prevention, hostile activity prevention. It applies not just to terrorism. For those who want to learn a little bit more about surveillance detection specifically, there's my book, which you were kind enough to mention. Um, we touch on surveillance a bit in this training as well, but the solution for this, for the for hostile surveillance, in this case, is surveillance deterrence rather than surveillance detection. So it's a little bit different. So we're very excited about it. And but yeah, th that's our that's our, um, our our newest exciting things. Anybody who also wants to get a lot of the content that I write, you can go to the Protection Circle blog, which I've been running for a couple of years. It's protectioncircle.org. And you can learn, obviously, about Surveillance Zone. You can learn, obviously, about the new e-learning course and so forth. So there's a lot, a lot of content on protectioncircle.org. Yeah, it certainly is. I uh, am a frequent uh, flyer through your website uh, to see what you've posted. So I want to thank you, Ami, for uh, being on the Ontic uh, Protective Intelligence podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. You guys are awesome. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.